Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, good evening, Seattle. Good evening, Puget Sound, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, advanced sommelier, your weekend wine guy, and your commodore of cocktails. Hey, thanks for uh, spending Saturday night with me and uh, all my great guests right here in 570 KVI, uh, 6 to 7 every Saturday night. If you ever miss a show, check out our website because we have a whole host of of a library of shows, and uh, you can... uh, Download them, uh, listen to them while you're you're ironing your shirts or cooking dinner or uh, riding in the car, and it's uh, it's always fun to learn about the world of wine, beer, spirits, cocktails, food, and more. Events and education from all around the world. Uh, today, I've got a great guest. Uh, he is, uh, well, he, he's kind of new to the wine biz, but he seems like he's um, he knows a lot, and that's what's really great about uh, my next guest. His name is Kent Walliser. He's the Director of Vineyard Operations for uh, the Sagemore uh, Vineyard Group, and uh, some of the uh, Washington State's finest vineyards uh, with the, the coolest names, too. It's uh, Dionysus and Bacchus, uh, Sagemore and Weinbau, and then they just picked up a new property um, from the Gamache family. Uh, but right now, hey, Ken Walliser, welcome to Happy Hour. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, it's, we've been uh, working on this for a while, and Couple the years. stars have aligned. <laughs> uh, great to have you in Seattle. So you live in Tri-Cities, is that right? I do. All right. So let's talk about um, the Walliser family. Uh, give me some background, because I, I think you've got uh, a lot of uh, roots here. So uh, our family uh, ended up in a little town called Milton Freewater, just south of a famous town called Walla Walla in the 1930s, and uh, uh, my grandparents raised kids, and some of the uncles got into agriculture. My cousin Tom um, got into ag with me as well. And along about the mid-90s, we kind of split up, and he stayed at uh, Pepper Bridge and started a winery called Barrison. And I went to Wenatchee and went to work for a Dole Food Company in the fruit business and well, then uh, found my way back to Sagemore. Interesting. When we think about Dole, I think about Dole. I think about pineapple for whatever reason, maybe some bananas. Um, but the, Dole was really uh, looking for fruit from all around the world, and they found uh, a little town Wenatchee, huh? They took a shot at the apple business and then uh, then gave up, and, and I had to go job hunting and found a little old vineyard down in Pasco called Sagemore and landed there for uh, the last 15 years. It's been great. It is great, and it's good good for us and uh, all the consumers because uh, we learned a lot. Um, you know, there's a lot of science going into viticulture these days, And uh, but I just want to say, you know, we haven't seen the uh, peeled apples and heavy syrup from Dole, have we? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not going to happen. Never happened. Um, you, uh, you joined Sagemore in 2002. Two. So... Uh, as an agriculture person, um, a professional, was there a an instant sort of crossover? Is growing grapes the same as growing apples? Well, they're permanent crops, so a lot of the same uh, principles apply. And Sagemore had apples and cherries as well, so that uh, that was part of the gig. But it was really the 800 acres of uh, wine grapes across four properties that intrigued me because I was looking for something new at that time in my life and getting into wine a little bit, and, and I was totally charmed by these old vines planted in 72 that had never froze to the ground, and so my my first declaration going out to the property and looking at it and those old vines was, this this has got to be sacred ground because the, the vines are tender, right? They, they, uh, they can freeze back easily in Washington if it's a cold site. Obviously, this isn't one of those, so I thought it'd be nice to raise a crop where uh, 
winter is kind. All right. Well, let's talk about Washington State Viticulture. Obviously, we've got 13 Appalachians now, I think it is. 14. There's 14. There's More coming. The Snake River Valley part of us, too, now. Is that in I Washington? So, yeah. Dips in there. And, of course, uh, the Rocks District. But is that actually, that's in Oregon. But the Rocks that, District of Milton Free Water is located in the state of Oregon within the Walla Walla ABA. I guess. So we, you can we, still We embrace them. We, we embrace them. They're our brothers. <laughs> That's right. And uh, they're, Portland is very much like Seattle 20 years ago, except uh, a little cooler, a little more hip, I think. Um, well, when we think about uh, Sagemore, I don't think people really know where it is. And even as a sommelier, an advanced sommelier, uh, and studying Washington wine, it's actually a pretty big state. To get from point A to point B to point C, uh, it takes a while. So driving, uh, obviously Yakima's close, and you have uh, the Rattlesnake Hills, you've got Snipes Mountain, you've got uh, the Natchez Heights, and of course uh, Yakima Valley, Columbia Valley, and the Horse Heaven area, which is kind of located. But tell us where the Sagemore Vineyard properties are. So if you go to the Tri-Cities, and you're planted out there around the river, and you look straight north up the Columbia River towards... Uh, uh, towards the White Bluffs area is what we call it. Uh, that's where the main properties are, Sagemore, Bacchus, Dionysus, on the east side of the Columbia, facing west, uh, on some bluffs, coincidentally called White Bluffs. And then from there, a little to the north and east is Gabash. But then you have to take a whole hour drive up to the Wallach Slope, uh, Mattawa, to see uh, Weinbaugh Vineyard, which is about half of our vineyard acreage up there. Interesting. So Sagemore Farms was an agriculture company. In 1972, they had an idea to start uh, planting vines. Now, was this with the help of Walter Clore? Well, yes. Actually, uh, the partners that started the company were all from the Seattle area, had no real ag uh, experience, but they had some money and a dream and a vision, and so they wanted to go to eastern Washington and raise ag crops. And uh, they found the properties, and then they started looking into wine grapes, got hooked up with Walt Clore. He helped them actually find the site, Bacchus and Dionysus, and then consulted with them uh, in the early years to uh, what to plant. And, of course, they planted everything. And they just took a big chance on a, on a fledgling industry that uh, really had no, no real uh, future at, at that time, 1972, tough 1972, time to start. 1972, right. That was some turmoil in uh, the United States at that time with... Uh, uh, was it the Vietnam and, and uh, of course, the Nixon and the Watergate and all that and just some general unrest with uh, racial stuff? And Nothing way, way more serious than what we see today yeah. and, uh, and hard to get into business. But in those days, people, you know, gravitated towards friends and family and put their money together and uh, took a big chance. And they owned the vineyards, the properties for about 40 years until 2000. Uh, 14, and then all the properties as a unit sold to uh, Allen Brothers, a fruit farm family up in Natchez, Washington, uh, who wanted to keep everything the same, uh, keep the business plan the same, the employees the same, and and uh, grow it from where it was. Wow! And how many total acres does uh, Sagemore or now the is it still it's Allen Farms, Allen Brothers Farms? Well, Allen Brothers is the uh, corporate uh, overall entity. Uh, the Sagemore brand still lives as as representing the vineyards, and so there's about 1,100 acres of of vines under the different uh, vineyard names. Interesting. Well, when we think about 1972, obviously we had Chateau Saint-Michel, because That's that right. was founded just uh, four or five years previous. Uh, Associated Vintners was around, right. and so Columbia had come into to being. But uh, there there are some other winery names. I'm trying to remember. I think Hinserling might have been around at that we time. We sold back in the day to Hinserling, uh, Associated uh, Vintners, or Columbia. What it became. Was Preston Cellars there as well? We sold to Preston some. Uh, How about Katarina? Katarina doesn't ring a bell right. then. But, but we also sold to... Uh, St. Chappelle in Idaho. St. Chappelle, right. Uh, then along came a few guys out of Walla Walla that uh, started making some stuff 
kind of home brew kind of a thing, you know. <laughs> a guy named Gary Figgins uh, making a little bit of cab, and uh, Rick Small in '79, and uh, later in '83, Lacole. So it kind of it kind of got us into uh, some of those what what have now become iconic family wineries in the state of Washington. Sure. Well, when you are such an early uh, pioneer in this uh, nascent industry back in the 70s, it's easy to, you know, you're the one having the grapes. I mean, how many other growers were there? Was Hogue growing at that time, or that they probably came in the late 70s and early uh, 80s, right? I think so, yeah. And, of course, St. Michelle planted a lot in 72 as well um, at Cold Creek, I think, and maybe Canoe Ridge. Um up at Patterson. So we've had grape industry in Washington State for really over 150 years, right? They're early 1800s, and uh, really it was about... Uh, 1850s, somewhere. Yeah, and it was all sweet Snake wine. It was, we had the, the, the Italian immigrants and the French immigrants planting grapes, and uh, there it was really just part of the, the land, the, the landscape and, and the culture, the tradition. Well, they, they came from Europe. They brought their wine, wine appetite, if you will, and planted grapes wherever they landed, and some really worked and some didn't work as well, but scattered all over the state there were there were some wine grapes for home winemaking. W.B. Bridgman, right? That's he right. He was one of those pioneers. He was actually an inspiration for uh, our one of our founders, Al, uh, Albert Ravenholt, because Albert got to know um, Bridgman in Sunnyside because Albert married uh, the postmaster's daughter. And then, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, then spent time with Bridgman in the mid-40s and got hooked on the whole idea, and that that dream laid dormant until the mid-60s when he and Alec Bayless got together as partners and found uh, the original Sagemore property and got on with it. Wild. And we talk about, um, well, I'm speaking with Kent Walser, who is the Director of Vineyard Operations for the Sagemore Group uh, and some iconic vineyards here in Washington State. And uh, you signed on in 2002. Obviously, the the vineyard was planted in in, uh, 1972. What was that initial planting acreage? So the first time out of the box, 470 acres. Wow. Almost, almost, yeah, that was the largest there was for about eight months or something until St. Michelle started planting. Interesting. So I, yeah. uh, in land, must have been quite inexpensive, although it's just a matter of, of it's how. It's all relative. It is. If it's all relative. You know, minimum wage was <laughs> really low. There were a lot of, for about 10 or 15 years, uh, Chris, there were a lot of cash calls from the partners to keep the thing going. Money, money was uh, expensive in those days, cost a lot to borrow money. And uh, hard to find markets, hard to have a wine industry without a lot of wineries, and everybody was trying to find their way. St. Michelle, Columbia as well. And, you know, we have, we had an enjoyable opportunity to hear the story of Sagemore um, at Taste Washington recently and the, the Fairmont, or excuse me, the Four Seasons Hotel, where you gave a great presentation. And we had uh, a fantastic lineup of winemakers. Let's talk about some of the winemakers and in, in properties who, who purchased some of the grapes from Sagemore. So, well, just like that day, Rick Small was there that's uh, been buying grapes from, since 1979 out of the same block at Bacchus, uh, Old Vines Cab, um, historic historic blend. A while back, I just happened to be able to enjoy dinner with him and drink in 1982, all from Sagemore. It was, it was uh, memorable. Wow. Uh, Gary Figgins, of course, came and, and went, started his own estate vineyards down in Walla Walla. Uh, Marty Club uh, and... Uh, Lacole 41, they're a big part of our history, and of course they've, they're they doing both Columbia Valley and Estate. But all in all, we're selling to over 100 wineries, and some have come along more recently since the big surge after uh, the turn of the century. So guys like Dusted Valley, Sparkman, uh, Barrister, another winery in Spokane, Arborcrest has been Arbor with us for Crest. about 30 years. Yeah, yeah. one Two, of my favorite wines is their Dionysus. Yeah, their second generation now is running uh, running the winery from the founders, and that's what we're starting to see in the industry, like Bernard Griffin, Rob, and uh, Deborah, yeah. their daughters are starting to work 
worked at. Uh, we've sold to them forever. Uh, Bookwalder's another one, uh, right? Sure. Uh, John and Gretchen. Fact, yeah, John and Gretchen are second generation as well because uh, John's dad, Jerry, actually managed Bacchus uh, for about seven or eight years and lived out there uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s. So there's a lot of ties to a lot of wineries, a lot of friends in the industry. Yeah, and it's great, and that's what makes Washington very special is that uh, there's real an honest family start. I mean, this is not a, I mean, there's sure there's corporate business, but it starts with family and relationships, and, and to have those handshakes still count as, mean something uh, on the east, <laughs> east side of the mountains is important. Yes, it does. Um, how many, you said, we initial planting was 470 acres? Correct. And uh, now it's 1,600? No, we're at about 1,100. So the next the next big push was uh, a uh, failed uh, attempt in the early 80s by a German a national that came over here and wanted, wanted to do a German Riesling by the name of Longoose. And so they planted about 250 acres up at uh, what's now Weinbau with our partners. And then that, uh, that went bankrupt. So the partners took over the vineyard and have grown that from 240 to 450 in the same location. Wow. When we talk about Riesling, you know, I think there's a lot of um, idea that low crop, low harvest is good. But is was that true for Riesling? No, not in the state of Washington. We've got a lot of heat units, and so we, we tend to crop it bigger. Uh, we are still stretching where it grows, and, and wine style is dictating now, you know, um, how that Riesling gets, gets portrayed back to the market, whether it's sweet or dry, um, depending on where it's grown. Uh, Ancient Lakes, we've got some stuff that's been in the ground since uh, 1972 that's it's pretty cool. And where did that uh, mother clone come from, that uh So the, so the, main, the main Washington clone is Geisenheim 110, and that's and Oh, that's from prolific. the University of Geisenheim in that's Germany. Right. And, that's uh, right. The Rheinhessen? That's, but, yes, but since the turn of the century, there's other clones that have been introduced which are you know creating some stylistic differences and blending capabilities, and that's what's kind of fun to explore. I love it. Speaking with Kent Walser, the director of vineyard operations for Sagemore Group, uh, uh, five vineyards, uh, Sagemore, Bacchus, Dionysus, Weinbau, and Gamache. And uh, we have a couple bottles of wine in front of me and uh, some news about Sagemore. And we come back from this break, we're going to chat more with Kent Walser right here on Happy Hour Radio. Big names, big news. Sean Hannity, weekdays 3 to 6 p.m. Talk Radio 570, KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle Sommelier, Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle, we're having a great Saturday night. Welcome back to round two. Hope you got uh, something taste in your glass. I have three glasses in front of me, three bottles, uh, actually six bottles. Gosh, I'm seeing double already. And it's early. Uh, I had the pleasure of hanging out with Kent Walliser. He is the Director of Vineyard Operations at Sagemore Group. And we're chatting about, well, um, some of the, the producers that purchase grapes, some of the history. And uh, you actually came and, and brought three wines. Tell me about the wines you've, you've brought to, to taste. So, you know, Sagemore, uh, uh, growing grapes for 40 years, 40-plus 40 years, and never had a, the, the original partners chose never to have a winery uh, for, for reasons of their own. Uh, I came along and had a little different idea that maybe we should be making wines we, we've got the vineyard reputation but it's kind of tricky making making wines and then competing with uh, 
your customers. But uh, <laughs> but fun has to be had sooner or later, right? And so we decided to step into that about two or th- well, with the 2014 vintage with this cab. But to go along with that, then we uh, last fall we we also did some Riesling and Sauvignon Blanc, and I I had a vision with. Uh, my vineyard manager, Lacey Liebeck, to uh, find some winemakers that would would enjoy the project as much as we would. And so for the Riesling, I, I wanted a white winemaker that was close to uh, the vineyards. And so uh, a young woman that I've worked with for a while, Allie Mayfield, who's currently with the Walls Winery in Walla Walla, she's got a passion for making white wines. And I think to make white wine good in Washington, you've got to have a passion because as I've observed, it's not as easy to make really great white wine as it is red wine. And so I think that's uh, that's where we want to venture with, with these two wines. And it's it's basically uh, directed between Lacey and Allie as uh, these two wines are dry and off dry and a field blend. And so I think with the blocks that we have and the clones we have and the picking dates that you can juggle, uh, that's that's what we're after. And then we just want to we want to make that a partnership between the winemaker and the vineyard manager and really bring that to consumers to see that craft is is born both in the vineyard and the winery. I love it. Um, And it's interesting, the little secret about uh, the wine, uh, making wine, is that white wine is more difficult than making red wine because uh, red wine, you've got oak and you've got tannin and you've got these other uh, tactile flavors and um, expressions that that can cover up some flaws a little bit. Plus, you can probably fix it because you've got more time. White wine, you know, you press it, ferment it, and it's either right or wrong sometimes. Um, You know, when it comes to Riesling, I think Riesling has gone through, obviously, a rejuvenation to some degree in the fact that that we sell a lot of Riesling, but I, I got to tell you, I'm not sure who's buying it. I don't see people, when I'm at the grocery store, you know, and buying my beer. <laughs> buying your beer. <laughs> buying my beer. Um, I don't see people, I mean, I see Riesling there and then it's gone, but who's buying it? This is camp, this is not grandma's drink anymore, is it? No, this is this is serious stuff here, especially this dry. And I I I have a personal opinion, I suppose, I could share with, with your listeners. Please that, do. That I think... Uh, sincerely, the state of Washington, the Seattle area, being close to the to the sea, we talk a lot about Riesling and how it how it goes well with food. And I think we could work harder right in our own backyard of uh, more restaurants, more psalms, you know, pouring more Rieslings. We have vineyard designated every red wine you can imagine, and just not quite as big an effort by the industry on white. But it, but Chris, I go back to this: it's hard to make, and this plethora of new winemakers coming to the state of Washington want to make red wines. And so they're gradually seeing the benefits of of white winemaking. And I think the growers are doing a better job of growing the fruit. And I think some work could be done, which I intend to work on, is, you know, getting the fruit from the vineyard to the winery in as fresh a condition as we can to preserve, um, preserve the freshness and not create flaws. If you think in the world around where a lot of white wine is made, think how close the vineyard is to the winery. In, in Europe and places like that, right? And yeah, it's, it's got, next door. It's got to help with wine quality down downstream. So we have our challenges because the vineyards in the eastern part of the state and the wineries are, you know, some distance from most All of the vineyards. Right. But we're going to figure that out. And uh, and I think the proof's in the glass. Uh, drones, right? drones. <laughs> An army of drones will be dropping clusters crushing of grapes, the, maybe crushing the vineyard. Right I mean, into I don't there. know, but something different. That's it. Well, you know, interesting. You, you um, we have these wines poured. I'm gonna let them breathe a little bit, yeah. And we'll get to those. Um, um, but you you had a, a comment at the uh, presentation at Taste Washington about what really changed uh, America's appetite or thirst for for wine, for from alcoholic beverages, from martinis to beer. 
tell us about that. And when you saw this this sort of curvature of, um, well, when you witnessed it or you understood what happened, this phenomenon, what, what happened in the world of wine or in the world that changed our view on wine? So clearly we go back to the 60 Minutes episode in the early 90s, and somebody just finally figured out that lifestyles in Europe are healthy. Why not make that lifestyle attainable in the United States? And so I think just a lot of public awareness, and then the wines, coincidentally, particularly out of California at the time, were pretty doggone good and affordable, and it just took off. And Washington, in the mid-90s, really stepped up with growing practices that uh, that brought on wine quality to where we see it today, and uh, the world caught on, and, and especially people who wanted to get into the business. And so think about, um, Chris, if you will, like with 900 wineries in the state of Washington, that's a the equivalent of having a sales force of 900 uh, ambassadors going out in the world selling Washington wine. If we only had 30 wineries, we'd have 30 salespeople. So it's great to have all these wineries, all those people working their tails off to uh, promote themselves, promote Washington wine. And I think that's what's really spread the word is is uh, passionate people, mom and pop type, you know, cottage industry that... Uh, their their passion is there, and people see the authenticity. Well, it is uh, in a work of art in some degree. Um, there is, and people have. Uh, there's a wine called the masterpiece, actually. <laughs> and when you think about the French paradox, uh, this lifestyle movement, uh, everything's pretty healthy from Europe except for the guitons, right? You can't have those. <laughs> well, We've got our own uh, Marlboro man out here, and I'm sure there were some farmers back in the day that uh, you know really uh, related to that particular um, perspective on life. So uh, when we're thinking about wine, obviously. Cabernet is now the most dominant grape in Washington State. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So, and, and there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, uh, people you can people spend more on a red wine and Cabernet, and people get Cabernet. I think people like the dark red fruits, a little bit of the herbaceousness, but they get the tannin and they get the oak, and it's a big wine. And and sometimes when you work hard in life, you want something. You want a really, really good hard kiss. <laughs> if you say so, yes. <laughs> I guess so. Let's, do, <laughs> we'll define let's that. celebrate that. That's right. And so um, it, it surpassed Chardonnay, and, uh, and, but Riesling is still is like a stalwart, right? Because we produce the most more Riesling in the world than any other country and or... We have the largest Riesling producer in the world I see here in our too. backyard, St. Michelle Wine Estates. And, and this industry in the state of Washington would not be even a blimp on uh, anybody's radar without St. Michelle Wine Estates uh, doing what they've done for the last 50 years. It's truly incredible that we have a company that has uh, been on our side and, and promoted Washington above all to, uh, to carry the flag. And so along with the Wine Commission and all these other winemakers out there, we wouldn't be where we are with St. Michelle. And, you know, they, they're big on Riesling, and it's, it's kind of flattened out a little bit on growth, but it's still growing. So I think, uh, I think as wine styles get uh, get made more diverse, um, the smaller winemakers are going to come up, and I think it'll you'll see even more resurgence. Plus, I still think the, the Psalms in Seattle will play a big role. They're going to come around and feature some uh, smaller producers on their wine lists, and people are going to get to uh, try it. Uh, and that's really the key, is to uh, influence the influencers and to get us to talk about it. We'll, we can talk about German Riesling till we're, uh, you know, 95 and just having a great time with all that acidity, austerity, and and uh, aromas, and sometimes the Seuss Reserve, the sweetness. But you, you said something about Chateau Saint-Michel. It would be easy, and in this day and time, with competition and conglomeration, it would be really easy for a company with the magnitude and uh, power of Saint-Michel in those early days to try to squash the competition, to say, you know what, 
No, we're going to control it. We're the people. But instead, they were benevolent. They said, you know what? We we see this as the the tide rising all boats, right? That's right. And, you know, we were... Uh Back in the day, uh, there there's still about sixty or seventy percent of our industry, and that's that's who took most of our fruit, and they're still our largest customer. So, there's a total recognition that uh, we need each other. Uh, they recognize that with the growers. Uh, they they grow some grapes themselves, but by and large, their production comes from growers, and so we have a symbiotic relationship, and we know how that works. So, without without that relationship, our industry doesn't go forward, and uh, it's a tribute to them, and I think they, they did embrace the smaller winemakers because, as we know, there's a lot of innovation, and the small guys have to try harder, so they do try harder uh, to, to, to have a foothold, right? And we all learn from that, so I think it's uh, been a great uh, journey. And it's been fantastic to even see uh, the the academia world, the academic world, sort of take on a larger role in this. I mean, obviously Walter Clore, a Oklahoma State agricultural professor, came over here and really helped uh, Washington State University figure out crop growing. I mean, because they're 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 the huge agricultural school in the state, and they we have wheat, and we have apples, and we have asparagus, and onions, and potatoes, and cherries, and all this fruit, and and then we have wine now, and wines become I don't know uh, maybe. Ten percent of our total agriculture, right? It's, it's yeah, pretty somewhere big. there, ten to fifteen percent. Yeah, but it's but it's also the uh, the thing about uh, wine in the in the state is we've got wineries, and so we're adding value all the way up to a retail price point. Whereas a lot of fruits and stuff like that get sold wholesale. So right. there's there's more people uh, employed and working through the system than some of our other crops, which is great. It takes many hands to make a glass many of hands. wine. Many hands. And uh, you have a lot of hands over at Sagemore Vineyards. I'm speaking with the director of vineyard operations. His name is Kent Walliser, a longtime uh, Walliser family. You might know his cousin Tom Walliser, who is the owner of Bearson Winery in Walla Walla. Now, uh, I think we've given these wines the time to breathe. When we come back from this break, we're going to dive into some of this Sagemore Riesling and a little Sagemore Cab. So stick around right here on 570 KVI. back and he's in charge kirby wilbur live and local weekdays nine to noon talk radio 570 kvi kvi want to know weekends time for another round of happy hour radio with christopher chan all right, that's me. I'm getting called out on the radio. Hey, thanks for joining us on Happy Hour Radio. Time for round three, and I've got three glasses of wine. And my pal Kent Walliser of Sagemore Vineyards, the director of Vineyard Operations. Uh, Lacey Liebeck is the uh, vineyard manager. And Allie Mayfield is making wine for this new Sagemore Vineyards property. What's going to be the name of this wine? So they're, they're both obviously Rieslings. One's going to be called Among Friends, <laughs> and the other one's going to be called Carving Blocks. Carving blocks, huh? Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Was this a think tank? Was this? Uh, did you uh, have a contest? Where I these think names it was, I think it was a napkin uh, sort of analysis of, uh, of Charles, how it felt when we made it. The Charles Smith method, right? Just put jot it down. Put some names down. <laughs> Too funny. Well, um, Riesling, I think, is is going to be one of the grapes of our culinary future because I think as, as much as I love white Burgundy and I truly do, I can drink it all day. Um, it's it's there's a spectrum of what those flavors are. Where Riesling really runs a a large gamut. Whether it's Australian, German, French, Alsace, um, Washington, and some even Oregon Riesling. So when we think about Washington Riesling, what's great about it is that we have this great diurnal shift in our viticulture, which maintains great acidity, and 
Riesling has high acidity naturally, but the flavors are, are typically stone fruits and some citrus, some lime, lime zest, uh, nectarine, peach, apricot, and some uh, tropical flavors, which I'm picking up on this one. This is a dry Riesling, 2016 vintage. Now, this is a field blend, you said? Well, yeah, both of, uh, both of these in front of you were, you know, were crafted between Thoughts with Allie and Lacey. And we, we, uh, all I said was I'd like a dry one and an off dry. You guys go, uh, go knock it out of the park. And so they picked the blocks and picked sections of the blocks and picked their maturity dates and, and put the fruit together. And then she took it as was and, uh, hasn't, hasn't really, uh, changed the blend at all. And so this is what you get when, uh, when they can work together and, and create it. Are these two separate wines or is it one, the same wine with just a little more residual no, sugar? No, 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 They're completely separate. Okay. Separate sources, separate blocks, separate rows, everything, separate pick dates. So even when you have a dry Riesling and a slightly off dry or sweet Riesling, um, it, it's different because those flavors have a different profile unto its own. Yeah, what we're lucky enough now to work with is, uh, like I said, more clones, which bring different flavors. We've got pick dates. Uh, we've got site, which changes... You know the, the the amount of acidity and and all those kinds of uh, background flavors, and then the craft is really knowing and loving reasoning in the first place, and then going out there and sampling in the field and talking about that and what that might bring, and and looking at the numbers, and then bringing the flavors and then and blending them together. Uh, I'm taking a sip of this first dry reasoning. Um, it's really delicious. 2016, I think, was a, a great vintage for Washington State all around. Not too hot, not too wet, not everything kind of went on time and on schedule. We had a long hang time for harvest. This wine has a great palate, great texture. Um, you get the acidity, but it's almost surrounded by this uh, this glycerol, this lithe feeling on the palate. I love the la- the lasting finish, mm-hmm. that, uh, but I'm but I'm not going to characterize the wine like a psalm like you. So <laughs> what you speak is what it is. But I love I love the dryness in the Sydney. Oh, this is nice. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to try the off dry riesling here. And uh, when we talk about and for a long time, riesling had a bad rap because everyone thought it was sweet and. To a degree, it is sweet, but sweetness, it's not how much sugar you add. It's how much acid is there, and Riesling has a lot of acidity, so you could have just a little bit of sugar, but it really works. It's like lemonade. Nobody wants to drink straight lemon juice. Nobody wants to drink straight sugar, so it has to be a perfect balance, and I think when Riesling really um, embodies that idea of uh, sour and sweet, it's the perfect uh, its the perfect sweet and sour chicken wine, right? <laughs> <laughs> Done well, it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, as a human, uh, a new world human, I should say, we uh, you know had a chance to um, learn about sugar as as kids, right? Yep. We love sugar, and we still like sugar because it's there's just this pleasure, and they, they've done science that sugar does things to the brain and and to the palate. Um, what's great about Riesling is that the acidity makes your mouth water, and the sweetness helps temper that acidity so it's not too sharp. But sugar also accents fruit. Like, I always use the analogy of vanilla, vanilla extract. Mm, that smells so good, I can't wait to taste it. And you taste it like, oh, my God, it's bitter. But you add some sugar to that, and holy smokes, you're in heaven. So yeah. sugar is nice a great marriage. It is a great marriage. And this this wine would go great with um, anything at Wild Ginger. I think they sell a lot of Riesling. Um, yes. anything great supporters. At, and a Thai restaurant as well. I think there's a famous restaurant down in Vegas that's got Thai food and the, one of the most amazing Riesling of the world's list. Um, this is really yummy. And I'm wondering what... Are there really extra calories in the off-dry Riesling? I mean, how many calories are we talking about here? No. Five. Yeah. No, nah. no. Come on. No, it's... Uh, 
It's just you know, only if you drink more. It's one less potato chip. <laughs> um, yummy. And Riesling, I guess, to some degree, suffers from being a very affordable wine. I think a lot of times when a wine is so affordable that people don't give it the seriousness. Yes, they think, oh yeah, you know, it can't be that great. It's only six bucks. But that dry Riesling, the Chateau Saint Michel. Uh, made at the International Riesling Convention we here two years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. The dry Riesling was like the top two out of the t- 15, 20 wines they tasted. Yeah, so why not? I mean, if it's in the bottle. It's a testament to Washington State. And of course, uh, all the great winemakers who have, I mean, Sam Michelle is the mother tree, right? That's you've right. got uh, Ron Bunnell, you've got Mike Janik, you've got Charlie Hoppus, you've got, I mean, Charles. Oh, no, Charles Smith. Wait. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brennan Layton. Yeah, yes, exactly. Brennan. Um, all right. So, one of my favorite wines in the world is anything, any cab from Sagemore, any red blend from Sagemore. And I, I say that because I, I've enjoyed Gordy Veneri's wine. He's our neighbor in Walla Walla, and they do a Sagemore Vineyard Select, and it's fantastic. But I, I've really come to appreciate that. And Dionysus from Arborcrest was one of my favorite wines. The consistency and the affordability. Those guys, I mean, that's a $35 uh, wine, and it should be 85 bucks. I mean, I agree. it drinks that way. So, Allie's making this Cabernet nope, as well? No, nope. oh, Another story says? here. Tell me about it. So, uh, back in the day and when I started Sagemore, I kept asking the question, why aren't we making some wine? And that just wasn't going to go anywhere. So, over the years, I started watching all of our winemakers, and of course, I fell for Cab about as hard as anybody could. You didn't put that little comment box? <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah. tough. So why aren't we making wine? <laughs> so, uh, as time goes on and the, and the company changed hands, the new owners were uh, more willing to venture into something like this and so the first the first thing that happened was I was able to um, a a winery actually gave back some fruit in a block of cab that I had always coveted Um, you have to understand Chris uh, not having a winery but selling to all the winemakers you didn't I wasn't in the wasn't the business of taking grapes back from from wineries and so (laughs) to go out and make a wine and take somebody's grapes just went against my principles so I had to sit wait Uh. patiently until somebody gave up some fruit that I wanted and I always if I was going to make a wine put Sagemore on it for the first time and this will be historic it was going to be Cabernet Mm -hmm. and it was going to be Cabernet then I had to pick a cab winemaker right and because I'm no winemaker admittedly so uh, searching over the group uh, one one gentleman stepped forward and and said he had a change in plans in his life. And, and when he said that, I said, could one of those plans include me making some Cabernet? And he said, yeah, I could probably do that. So starting in 14, I got some grapes back from uh, Bacchus Block 3 mm. and uh, planted in 72. And I looked around, and I asked a friend of mine and winemaker uh, John Abbott at Abeja at the time if uh, if he might like to make some more Cab and put his name on the bottle and put Sagemore on the bottle. And so that started 14, and that's what you're drinking in this glass is uh, is our interpretation of Block 3 Cab with uh, with the hand of John Abbott. And I, uh, I've i always respected his ability to make Cabernet out of Washington, and, and I think this reflects uh, our joint efforts. And John came out of California, I believe, right? And, Oregon. Oh, Oregon, yes. So and then he Oregon started... Oregon State Beaver like me, so he... Uh, <laughs> he <laughs> Kindred spirit. <laughs> That's right. All <laughs> right. And it's, I'm funny, there's not a lot of wood on this wine for a beaver. It's, um, um, but he was uh, at Canoe Ridge for a long time, and yep. then he uh, he went off to uh, work Abeja. with uh, Abeja, which makes phenomenal wines. Now, I always thought that his ability to craft mouthfeel and texture was, was phenomenal. Um, and I think that's that leads a lot. You can put 
two years of oak is two years of oak, right? But to have that texture come out and to manipulate either the pH in or the micro ox or whatever they do, he did it right. Now I'm magic. tasting this. It is magic. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and the angels share something like that. Mm. Um, this is uh, what 18 months of new oak. Longer, I think. Is it? I think so. Okay, because I smell it. Well, and I can smell it. It's probably it's, somewhere around that. It's it was and so. I don't know that. <laughs> bottled a year ago. So John's working on another project called Devona, and he's making some Chard, some Pinot, and this Cab. And, uh, of course, he's a delight to work for. But work And he's with, down but in Oregon, right? Now no, he's in Walla Walla. Oh, is he? Yeah. I say, he's getting Pinot out of Oregon. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So, so it makes it sound like he's down there, but, right. but it's not. Uh, yummy. Delicious. And uh, what's this one going to be called? This is uh, Stars in a Row. Stars in a Row? They They aligned. They lined just Me, like today. John, the grapes. Yeah. And Happy Hour Radio. <laughs> yeah. uh, so fun. Do you have a distributor mind? I mean, do you, are you going to work? Working on it. You're going to work on it. Got another little project to. Uh to try to sell part of the uh, wine we're making. All right. So. And now you also have a new project, which we're going to touch on uh, when we come back from this break. It's, uh, it's it sounds really, really cool. I'm really excited to share this with our audience. Uh, it is the uh, the middle of April, folks, and May's coming up. Uh, in June, we've got Celebrate Walla Walla. It's the yeah. world of Syrah, and uh, there's going to be some great um, winemakers who make Syrah out of California and out of, I think, uh, Chile or something like that. Um, but hey, folks, uh, I've got Kent Walser here with Sagemore Farm. Uh, the vineyard uh, manager, the operations manager. Um, <laughs> I've had some wine already. Hey, stick around, folks. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Start your day the right way. John Carlson, live and local, 6 to 10 a.m. Talk Radio 570, KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio, our fourth and final segment. Uh, enjoying a conversation with Kent Wallace, the Director of Vineyard Operations for Sagemore. We just tried, uh, let's see, there is uh, Amongst Friends is a Riesling, the Dry Riesling, and then Carving Blocks. Carving Blocks, and now Stars Aligned Cabernet. Stars in a row. Stars in a row. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> Close enough is right. <laughs> well, when I'm thinking of stars, I see you have this special box with looks like three stellar stars of wine in there. Tell me what your new project is. So it was sort of crafted at the same time when uh, the wine, the cab, was conceived in, in um, probably my guilt complex at some level. Like, if we're going to make wine and compete with our customers, uh, how's that going to look and how's that going to feel? And so then I woke up one day and I said, you know, let's, let's look at the world upside down and say, why compete with our customers? Why not join them and, uh, and try to sell their wine too? And, and I thought, well, I don't know. Can we do that? And Looking at 1,100 acres of vineyard and 100 winemakers, it looked like there's, there could be some choices of wines made from our vineyards uh, that you could stock a wine shop. <laughs> okay. So you take uh, all those permutations and variations of wines made across the spectrum of winemakers that we have, and uh, let's see if we can stock a wine shop online, uh, direct to consumer. And so we created this company that's uh, pretty close to going live called Selections by Sagemore. You can see it on the box. And this is just a sample I'm going to leave with you, Chris, to illustrate uh, what I think uh, curious wine drinkers will be looking for that, uh, you know, might uh, might want to see three wines in a box that are all come from the same vineyard, the same rows side by side, but made by three different winemakers and be able to really dig deep. I mean, this is for the curious 
serious winemaker that wants to get deep into uh, what what creates flavors different from one wine one winemaker to another with the same fruit. Now, I see the bottles in there, but do you ha- also have some information, that little packet that says, hey, this is what, uh, this is what uh, Joe... Uh, right. So, so the idea is uh, a consumer like yourself goes to selectionsbysagemore.com, signs up. We send you an email, and we make offerings after we put them together. Um, then in that offering, there's enough descriptions of the wine, uh, both how it is, what it is, technically, that you look at it and say, yeah, I want to I give that a try put your order in and we ship it and uh convenience at your door on something that would be very difficult and expensive to put together on your own but delivered delivered to your door right so you, you have the knowledge you have you obviously have the uh the the, the wine base to to select from so this is great and it's called selections, selections by, by sage more and these are all wineries that use sage more fruit so it could That's be right. gamache winebow bacchus right. dionysus and sage more fruit and uh this is your first uh what do you call it, the first expression or the first package, uh, the first offering? And do you have some on, can people find this now online? We're we're at the stage now of signing people up for an email blast list going forward, and it's just to build as we get more uh, people signed up, then we can make more offerings and try to build it uh, organically within within people's interest. And, of course, we've got to line up the wineries and line up the people, and and, it's just going to be an exciting thing to explore and grow because it's not being done. Right. You know, I thought about this, and I'm not going to steal your thunder, but I said, as a sommelier, I would love to see a packet of, this is Merlot, from one vineyard. This is with no oak. This is with one year of of oak, or 50-50, and this is where, with two years of new French oak. So people can understand that same wine, same winemaker, but different expressions of of wood. So that's like Merlot 101, and then you do the same thing. I'd love to see that. I think... um, Walla Walla Community College might be working on that. So we're we're looking for those folks that want to explore that kind of experience, right? And uh, I think there's a lot of them out there, and I think it's authentic. And we we promote then cross-promote our own wineries that we're in business with. They're our business partners, right? And, they are. Uh, and we want to see them they grow. Win, you and win. These, that's right. So it's uh, we hope it works. I mean, we're... Uh, we're working hard at it to see that it is. Well, tell me what you have in this box real quick. So we've got three Cabernets, all from uh, Dionysus Vineyard. I'm going to leave them with you, Chris. So all I right. Hope, I hope nobody raids your, uh, raid your house later. But <laughs> one, by, one by John Bookwalter. From, these are all from Block 18 at Dionysus, cool. planted about 1999, I think. Uh, a cab uh, from Tempest Cellars in Walla Walla. Joe Forrest. Yep, Joe Forrest. And uh, Soulstone, right out here uh, in Issaquah. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, Buzz and Karen Buckingham. Karen Buckingham, yeah, yeah great Buzz. folks. Uh, Buzz is Buzz and Karen are a lot of fun, and they've got a, a cab from the same block. So all three cabs, same, same block, two thirteens and one fourteen, as okay. a matter of fact. But a sample of what uh, how it would be. Interesting, I love it. And so basically, this is a hundred dollar box, one twenty five. Yeah, I mean, about one twenty five yeah. on this this sample. So awesome. we we think we can do you know fifty to uh, to upwards of whatever, um, and give a range of. Styles, wines, uh, from Rieslings to cabs and everything in between. Fun. Uh, selections by Sagemore, uh, courtesy of Kent Walser, the Director of Vineyard Operations. Uh, Sagemore.com, how do we find some more information if you want to check uh, out this wine Sagemorevineyards.com or Selections by Sagemore. I love it. Sign hey, up. Thanks so much for sharing um, your brand new wines. Congratulations on actually making wine. And this is very cool. Selections by Sagemore. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me at Happy Hour Radio. My pleasure, Chris. Hey, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. It's Kent Walser. This will, um, uh, I got a guest coming up uh, next week. It's uh, Three of Cups. And uh, we're going to talk about a Washington winery here and uh, just chat more about the industry, how they got started. Um, If you're out and about, folks, remember, 
Life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers.